So grateful for the ministry of the choir and, and team, and so grateful to join my voice with yours in worship. I just love hearing the congregation sing praises and worship to the Lord. If you were with us in the fall, we did a little mini-series on our uh, mission and vision statements and our core values, and if you remember, one of our seven core values is expository preaching, and so while we do topical messages occasionally. We always do them on special occasions like uh, Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving. And then we occasionally will do a brief uh, topical miniseries on other occasions. The vast majority of the time here at Calvary Bible Church, we're studying through books of the Bible. And we're studying these books as the Lord gave them, beginning with verse 1 and studying passage by passage, sometimes verse by verse from beginning to end. So... It is the sequence of whatever book we're studying which determines what I'm preaching on the next week. I'm not sitting there in my office deciding on some theme. So what never ceases to amaze me is how the next passage, the one that from a human perspective we just happen to come to, turns out to be the exact text of scripture that my soul needed for that exact time. I experienced that again this week as today's passage, which is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, was the exact passage that my soul needed at this exact time in my life. I hope as we study books of the Bible together that that's your experience too, and I pray that's what the Lord will do for you today. James 1, 2 through 4 talks about trials. And this week has been full of reminders that believers encounter various kinds of trials as we live in this fallen world. On Friday, I was in Denver for the funeral of a very dear friend of 25 years, Rico Figueroa, who died at age 44, leaving behind his wife Brenda and four precious children from young elementary to teenage years. And as is, was mentioned in the announcements and in the bulletin, this week we lost several members as well. The congregation is grieving with the families. And of course, there are many other trials that various members of our church family are going through. I spoke to a very broken-hearted mother this week and I'm aware of some of those trials. Trials come, our text is going to say, in various kinds. We encounter in this fallen world various kinds of trials. Trials can be spiritual or physical or they can be both. They can be internal or external. They can be personal or relational. They can include death, disease, distress, division, disaster, defeat, or several of those terrible Ds all at the same time. And they can come unexpectedly, come at any time. In fact, James is going to talk about when we encounter various trials, acknowledging that we will encounter them. And the word encounter there is the same term that's used in the story of the Good Samaritan where the man is walking along the road and he encounters thieves. He's just going on his journey and suddenly he is beset by these thieves that 
attack him and leave him, leave him in agony, bleeding on the side of the road. That's what we face in life. We encounter various kinds of trial. Because we encounter them, the Lord has given us instructions on how to respond. And that's what James 1, 2 through 4 is going to teach us. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What a gracious providence it was of the Lord that it is this passage that I came to in my studies this week. So let's dive into this passage together to learn what the Lord wants to teach us from this amazing and important and life-changing text. I believe God wants to use this text to radically change us, to radically change how we think about our trials and how we react to our trials. But he doesn't just want to change the way we think and react to trials. He wants to change us. He wants to change our character, who we are. And he wants to do that work of personal transformation through our trials. And that really is the heart of this passage. First, our trials test us and then they transform us. They test our faith and then they transform the faithful. It is because of that glorious transformation that scripture says we can consider it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. You know, I think that we think about our trials in very childish ways from a spiritual standpoint. We often think about our trials the way a child thinks about braces. I had braces, many of you did, and at the time, I, I just didn't get it. Why would my parents and these people do this to me? It hurt. Kids can't see past present pain and discomfort. They don't have the length of perspective to see past the present pain to the future gain. To kids, braces just hurt. And then their parents tell them, well, it'll make you look better. And they go to the mirror and they open their mouth and they're like, no, it doesn't. This isn't just painful, it's pointless. But of course, the parents do indeed know better because they have the advantage of the longer perspective. The parents know that these temporary hardships are producing a beautiful and worthwhile long-term transformation. 
and that their child will eventually appreciate what they've done for them, the sacrifices that they've made for them. Likewise, to us, trials are not only painful, they seem pointless. They're not only hard, they seem hollow. They're not only miserable, they seem meaningless. But to God, they are the fire that refines the gold. They are the grinders that shape and polish the diamond. They are the means by which he, as a master craftsman, is creating and shaping and molding something beautiful and something eternal. It is the means by which he is crafting a radiant soul. So while from a temporal, fleshly, and earthly perspective, trials are painful and pointless, from an eternal, spiritual, and heavenly perspective, trials are joyful and therefore they are justified. Just as the temporary pain of braces produces a radiant smile, the temporary pain of trials produces a radiant soul for all eternity. That's what the Lord is trying to teach us through the pen of James. He's trying to teach us to see our trials through his perspective, not ours. To see them through the eyes of faith, not the eyes of the flesh. To see them now the way we certainly will see them later. He's trying to teach us, as Proverbs 3 says, to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. See, the kid going through the pain of having braces put on and all that goes with that. If he trusts in his own understanding, his pain will seem pointless. But if he trusts his father, he'll see why it's happening and what is being produced through that pain. I've never met, at least not so far, a kid who is glad they got braces while they had them. But I've never met an adult who regretted it afterwards. In the same way, on earth, we struggle not to resent our trials. But in heaven, we will be so very grateful for them. Because we will see and experience how God has used them to make us into radiant souls with radiant smiles of radiant joy which will glorify the master for all eternity. James wants to teach us how we can have that heavenly joy right now. He wants to help us peek through the veil of tears to see the glory that is being produced by them. He wants to give us a glimpse into the glories of heaven, even in the midst of our sufferings on earth. He wants us to have the joy of the next life, even as we endure the hardships of this life. So how can that be? This text is shocking. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. How can it be? How can we 
consider it all joy. How can we have genuine joy even in the midst of terrible trials? What do we need in the midst of our need? These three verses are going to teach us three things that we need in our needs. Three things we need in order to be genuinely joyful even in the midst of excruciating trials. To be joyful in earthly trials, we need a heavenly perspective. We need a heavenly perseverance. And we need a heavenly purpose. A heavenly perspective, a heavenly perseverance, and a heavenly purpose. Let's look at verse 2 where we'll see that to be joyful in earthly trials, we need a heavenly perspective, a heavenly perspective. Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. You need a heavenly perspective. In the Koine Greek of the original text where endings allow them to switch up the word order in order to emphasize key ideas, the words all joy are the first words in the verse. It says, all joy deem it my brothers when you encounter trials. All joy. So the theme here is really not trials, it's joy. All joy. How can you have all joy? How can you have complete joy, full joy? James here is going to teach us the same thing that Paul teaches later on. Remember, James is the first, the earliest book written in the New Testament. Later on, Paul will teach the exact same thing. Paul will teach us in Galatians chapter 5, that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy is something which is produced by the Holy Spirit, and he is the sole source of genuine joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It is not a product of circumstances. You can have wonderful circumstances and not have joy but you can also have terrible circumstances and yet have genuine and real and true joy. We see this throughout the scripture. In the Old Testament, King Saul sat on a throne surrounded by everything a man could desire and yet he was miserable. And there in the corner, seated on a stool is one of his servants, David, playing a harp to try to cheer up the king and dodging spears as Saul raged. The man on the throne had wonderful circumstances and internal misery. The servant on the stool had difficult circumstances and internal joy. Same thing is true in the New Testament. Judas Iscariot walked out of his meeting with the Sanhedrin with pockets full of silver and a soul full of misery. Just a few years later, Paul and Silas could sit in their own filth in the stocks in a dungeon and sing songs of joy. You see, joy is something the Holy Spirit produces 
And the fruit of the Spirit is not in any way dependent upon external circumstances. That means that the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer can give joy to a North Korean Christian in a gulag just like he can give joy to an American Christian enjoying a cruise ship. The believer on the cruise ship can have joy through the indwelling spirit and the believer in the gulag can have joy through the same indwelling spirit because joy is a fruit of the spirit, not a product of circumstances. Now obviously the physical experiences of the two are radically different. One is in misery and one's in comfort and ease. But the spiritual experiences of the two can be exactly the same. In fact, as we'll see in verses 3 through 4, and as we've seen repeatedly through church history, the joy which is the fruit of the Spirit shines brighter in the darkness than it does in the light. So the believer in the gulag can actually have more spiritual joy than the one on the cruise ship. Notice also that James is not saying that you can have more joy. He's saying you can have all joy. All joy is the theme of these verses. Pure joy, full joy, thorough and complete joy. When he talks about all joy, he's not talking about a grudgingly grin and bear it kind of joy. He's talking about a genuinely grateful in the midst of it kind of joy. That's the kind of joy that only the Holy Spirit can produce. You can't get it anywhere else. So if you do not know the Lord, if you're not born again, if you're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, this joy cannot be yours. You will be instead what Jesus described as the seed which fell on the rocky soil. It seemed to have a little bit of life, but as soon as the trials come, it had no root and so it withered away. You can only have this abiding joy if you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And for the believer who is indwelled to experience this joy, you must align your mind with the mind of the Spirit. You must align your will with the will of the Spirit. You must align your heart with the heart of the Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit of God, you must have a thoroughly heavenly and a radically eternal perspective. Can I tell you that the Holy Spirit does not have a temporal perspective, he has an eternal perspective. He does not have an earthly perspective, he has a heavenly perspective. So to experience this joy, you must align your heart with the heart of the Spirit, and his heart is thoroughly heavenly and radically eternal. That's why the imperative, the command in verse 2 is to consider, to deem, to regard, or to have a certain perspective on something. He's saying, you have a human perspective. The Holy Spirit has a divine perspective. You need to decide to realign your perspective into alignment with his. That command, consider consider it all joy, is in a form called the Aris Imperative. 
So what is being commanded here is that we make a definitive once and for all change in the way we view trials. The heiress describes a completed action. So when he says, consider it all joy, he's not talking about this kind of ongoing process of you know, gradually coming to understand that you know, there can be joy in trials. No, he's saying, come to a definitive moment in your life where you decide to realign your perspective with God's. Your perspective on trials needs to be realigned with God's and you need to come to a decision point where that happens. Consider it. Make the switch to consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. James is not teaching us a coping mechanism. He's teaching us a complete paradigm shift which should forever transform our entire worldview. He's teaching us to adopt the parent's view of the braces, not the child's. We've been walking around with a childish view of trials. He's saying you need to have the Abba Father's perspective. Switch from a child's perspective of trials to the Father's perspective. God's view of our trials, not man's. An eternal view, not a temporal view. Warren Wiersbe comments, quote, our values determine our evaluations. Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. And I might add, and confuse us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, trials will make us bitter, not better. God, as we will see, has a purpose in trials. But as we'll also see later on in the book of James, Satan also has a purpose for trials. He wants your trials to be temptations. But God wants your trials to refine your character. Verse 2 is telling us that from now on, from a decisive point in our lives, and from then on, we need to view our trials the way God views them. And he views them as the means by which he is producing the eternal joy of a radiant soul. So consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. In other words, you need to make a once and for all decision to view your trials the way God does. You know, I doubt that the gold appreciates the fire. I doubt that the diamond appreciates the grinder. But you know who does appreciate the fire and the grinder? The jeweler. The jeweler does. Because he knows what he is doing. And the fire and the grinder are the tools, the means he is using to create something majestic and something beautiful. Something that will last. God's intention is to adorn his bride, the church, so that she will radiantly reflect his glory for all eternity. He intends to adorn his bride, 
with gold refined by the fire and diamonds that are perfectly cut and fully polished. And he knows that the end result will be glorious. So we need a heavenly perspective. The perspective of the jeweler, not the gold. Of the jeweler, not the diamond. The gold doesn't appreciate the fire, the diamond doesn't appreciate the grinder, but the jeweler does because he knows what he's doing. You need to trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. God knows what he's doing. You need to trust him. You need to have a heavenly perspective. God is working a glorious result, but to get to that result, first we have to endure the process, the process of refining it. For that, we need a heavenly perseverance, a heavenly perseverance. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You need a heavenly endurance, a heavenly perseverance. And verse 3 begins with a participle from gnosko. Unlike the word consider back in verse 2, which was in the aorist tense and described a definitive shift in perspective. The word knowing here in verse 3 is in the present tense, which describes an ongoing action. So uh, you have a definitive action in verse 2 and now an ongoing action in verse 3. And the word here, gnosko, describes a type of knowledge which is gained by experience. What James is saying in verse 3 is that we are coming to know in an increasing way via personal experience that the testing of our faith produces endurance. As we encounter trials and overcome them and get through them, we are coming to know experientially that when our faith is tested, it develops greater and greater perseverance. So putting the ideas of verse 2 and 3 together, in verse 2 he told us that we need to make a definitive, once-for-all decision to view our trials from God's joyous perspective. And now in verse 3 he's telling us that that decision will result in increasing experiential knowledge. This decision will have an effect. It will have a real effect in your ongoing experience. The key decision we are called upon to make in verse 2 is said in verse 3 to result in increasing confidence, the confidence which can only be gained by experience. When we consider it all joy, when we come to that perspective shift, we will increasingly come to know by personal experience that the result of trials is increased endurance, growth in perseverance. You see, spiritual strength is gained a lot like physical strength is, To gain physical strength, what do you have to do? Well, first, you must make a definitive decision that the pain of working out is worth the gain. You go to a gym, what is someone going to tell you? No pain, no gain. I remember my wrestling coach, you know, we'd be in the, you know, weight room. No pain, no gain. We'd be running bleachers. You know, he'd take us to the pool, you know, so it's humidity and heat and bleachers. No pain, no gain, guys. First, you must make a definitive decision that the pain of working out is worth the gain it will bring. That's the crucial considerate step in verse 2. 
But then you must actually start going to the gym. You need to not just consider it, you need to do it. You need to, in an ongoing way, start enduring those hard workouts. That's what verse 3 is saying. Verse 2 is the worldview shift that convinces you to get in shape. And verse 3 is the process of actually going to the gym every day and then experiencing the results. After you've adopted the right perspective, you need the right practice. After you've adopted the right perspective on trials, you need to follow through with perseverance through those trials. You need to be continually knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Pain will bring gain. You know, when I experienced the first major trial in my life, I didn't know if I'd get through it. At times I really doubted I would. I feared that maybe I was the seed that fell on the hard soil, that when trials came, it would have no root and just wither away. But when, by the grace of God, my faith endured, when I was protected by the power of God and endured the trial, I gained incredible confidence in the genuineness of my faith. See, the trials test your faith. They prove that your faith is genuine. And when your faith has been tested and shown to be genuine, it brings great confidence and great confidence brings great joy. I know now by personal experience that the testing of my faith produces spiritual endurance. I love that word, endurance or perseverance. Greek term is hupomene. It's just an awesome word. It's a compound word, consists of two parts, hupo, which means under, and mone, which means to remain or to stay put. It literally means to stay under something, to be able to carry it. It describes a person who is able to remain under a load and successfully carry it. Remember, as a young man, I worked construction. I was the low guy in the totem pole, so just working as a laborer. And so a lot of my job was like, hey, there's a truck here. Brett, go unload it. And so, you know, me and the other guy that was low on the totem pole, like he, he'd jump in the truck, you know, and he'd, there'd be like these sacks of concrete or whatever it was, you know, these big things, you know. And, you know, he'd be above me and he'd take it and he'd put it on my shoulder. And there were times where this load came on my shoulder and it was too heavy for me and I couldn't remain under it and I stepped aside and dropped it. I'm sure I ruined some materials in the process. Hupomene is the ability to remain under the load, to be able to bear it. Hebert says that this word presents the picture of being under a heavy load and resolutely staying there instead of trying to escape. Instead of trying to push away, you remain under it. So another commentator describes Hupomene as having staying power, tenacity of soul. It's the strength of character that enables someone to carry the weight of hardships without wavering, without running away, without faltering, and without quitting. And trials show whether a person's faith is genuine or fake. How many people do you know that, oh boy, they were, they were big Christians. And then 
they encountered a terrible trial. And you know what their response to the trial was? I'm done with this Christianity thing. I'm gonna deconstruct my faith because I thought that Christianity was a means by which I get an easy life, by which everything goes good for me and God isn't keeping his end of the bargain, I'm out of here. I'm gonna be an ex-vangelical, which is more properly a never-vangelical. First John 2 says, they went out from us because they were never of us. See, they never had the Holy Spirit, therefore they didn't have hupomene. Because see, the, the trials are too heavy. They're too heavy for you, they're too heavy for me, but guess who they're not too heavy for? That is the indwelling Spirit of God. So those who are indwelled by the Spirit of God have hupomene. Those who don't have the Spirit of God are crushed by the trials and walk away. I want to have hupomene, and I want to grow in hupomene. I want to have perseverance. The good news for all believers is that if you are truly born again, then by the grace and power of God, your faith will endure, and you will persevere to the end because the scripture says you are protected by the power of God for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul had endured trials. He had had his, test, his faith tested and shown to be genuine. He had watched other believers have their faith tested and proven to be genuine. And so he could write in Romans 8, 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Will any of these various trials separate us from the love of Christ? His answer, verse 37, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You will endure. God has promised it to you. God hasn't promised it'll be easy but he's promised to get you through. You need, though, heavenly perseverance, the type of perseverance that comes through the power of God. Well, there's a third and final thing our passage says that we need in order to be joyful even in the midst of our trials, and that is a heavenly purpose. To be joyful in earthly trials, we need not only a heavenly perspective and heavenly perseverance, but we need a heavenly purpose. Look at James 1, 4. It says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You need a heavenly purpose. There is a heavenly purpose to your earthly trials. 
Verse 4 says that the endurance that comes from trials has a perfect result. And that perfect result is said to be that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That phrase, so that you may be mature and complete, is a purpose clause. The Lord is here revealing the heavenly purpose of our earthly trials. And when we understand God's purpose, we will be able to consider it all joy when we see that purpose being fulfilled in our lives. When we understand the gain, we'll be able to bear the pain. When we understand the gain, we'll realize it's worth the pain. And I want you to notice what the purpose is. What is the end result? It's you. That's the end result. When uh, my brother died at age 25 and left behind his wife pregnant with their second child and a three-year-old, I thought, you know, you know God's going to use this for good. And I kept wondering, what, what is it that he's going to do? You know, is some famous person going to come to Christ through this? Is there going to be some just astounding event that's going to happen? No, you know, you know what? It, it was something much more amazing but also something a lot more subtle. God used it to change me. And I'm sure he used it to change Natalie. I'm sure he used it to change many others. The purpose is you. You are the diamond in the setting of gold that God is crafting. And when the master jeweler is done crafting you, you will reflect his glory for all of eternity. He's creating a masterpiece. And to do it, he needs to refine the gold and grind the diamond. God's goal, and therefore his purpose in allowing trials in your life, is so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That's his goal. That first term when it says that you may be mature. This is the Greek term teleos. It means to reach the intended goal. He wants to get you to the intended goal. It means to fulfill your intended purpose. To achieve maturity. It describes a soul which has become all that the creator intended it to be. God wants to bring you from wherever you are to that perfect destination that he has intended for you. That perfect state of completeness that he has intended for you. He wants you to be mature, perfected in your characteristics. He wants to burn off the dross and present you to Christ as a radiant bride, the church. He wants you to be mature. The second term in Greek means to be complete or fully equipped, having obtained the whole assigned portion It describes a personality that has developed all the skills, gifts, and traits that God intended you to have. So the first term describes someone in whom none of their character qualities are weak or or undeveloped. And the second describes someone in whom no character quality is missing. In other words, you are mature. All of your character traits are fully realized, and you're complete. You, You don't have any missing character traits. You're Mature and complete. All your godly character qualities are fully developed and strong and no godly character quality is missing. 
And then James says that after God uses our trials to refine our faith until we are mature and complete, James says that we will be lacking in nothing. That's God's goal, that you be lacking in nothing. This is a kind intent. This is a loving purpose. He doesn't want you to lack anything. He wants you to have the full measure of all the Christian graces with nothing left out, nothing undeveloped, and nothing missing. That's God's purpose, and it is a good purpose. Therefore, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The master is going to complete every brush stroke. And sometimes there must be dark brush strokes and hard brush strokes to create the masterpiece. He's doing it in you. So to be joyful in earthly trials, we need a heavenly perspective, a heavenly perseverance, and a heavenly purpose. Now I know some of the trials that some of you are experiencing. But I only know some of them. But here's the thing though, the good shepherd knows all of them. And he is a good shepherd. He knows all the trials all of his sheep are facing. And he has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. He has promised to be with you in the midst of your trials. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Yes, you will walk through the flood, you will walk through the fire, but you will not walk through them alone and you will be protected by the power of God for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God has promised to bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul could say in 2 Timothy 4.18 as he's facing persecution and martyrdom, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And as we already read, he will indeed finish the good work that he started in you. I am confident, Paul says, Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Consider it all joy. Two months before he died, my dear friend Rico preached a fantastic message on prayer. He served as an elder in his local church and was asked to preach on prayer. In that message, he shared that his favorite verse, the one that had sustained him through all the trials of life, was Psalm 27, 13 through 14. 
which says, I would have despaired unless. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. That's what my friend preached two months before he experienced it. May you take courage. Wait for the Lord. Yes, wait for the Lord. Lord, I want to thank you for my friend. A friend who was there for me in the hardest trial of my life. Oh, Lord, be there for his wife and his children in the hardest trial of theirs. Lord, thank you that we can consider it all joy when we face trials of various kinds because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. So Lord, may we let endurance have its perfect result so that we may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. We are grateful that you are crafting us so that we can radiate your glory and therefore worship and honor you for all eternity. Lord, do the work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.